I uh, have to admit a confession that the Gospel of John is my favorite gospel, which is why when we came to it, I abandoned our little crib sheet, and uh, we just simply plowed through chapter by chapter. Can you hear me? Can can you turn me, because you're breaking up, sorry. That's all right. Sorry. Can you hear me now? I can hear you now. I don't know what it is about that. Yeah, well, it is what it is. Um, so, um, and the reason I say that is because it seems to me that the Gospel of John gives a portrayal of Jesus that no other Gospel does. And not just a portrayal of Jesus, its theology is so rich and so so different. The The other Gospels... You have to dig it out of them. But John just plasters his gospel with it. I mean, there's some things to dig out, but <clears throat> he's, he's so candid about who Jesus is and what he came to do and how he came to represent the Father. And, and I can't help but hear in my mind <clears throat> Jesus' own words in John. Um, I have many things to tell you, but you cannot bear them now and you wonder what Matthew, Mark and Luke would have been like if they could have borne the message Jesus had and you wonder what we would know that we don't know if the disciples had been further advanced and and more open and less squabbling about who was the greatest uh, and had been willing to receive everything Jesus wanted to teach I just my hunch is that God is always limited by us to a great extent. And that there are vistas of understanding of his character that are just incredible. And I, I don't usually start with a little prologue here <laughs> uh, of the Sabbath school class, but I, I think what led me to it is a discussion I had in my Encountering Jesus class that was built on a passage in John that just kind of opened Pandora's box and... And I, particularly one student was just very troubled about, well, if you believe that, that wipes out the investigative judgment. It was, she was referring to the passage that Jesus had said about the judgment. And so I had to unpack what the investigative judgment would look like in light of that passage. And I went to other places in the Bible to try to recap what the investigative judgment really is. And at the end, I looked at her to see what her response would be. And she said, you know, the problem is that most everybody else doesn't teach that. And um, a student, a student who actually started the ball rolling came up to me afterwards and said, that was really beautiful. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. And, and I had never had such a class so in, enraptured in what I was saying, at least not in many years. It was a text we'll be coming to, or I would say what it was. It just tells me that we that John is rich, and and that we need to to glean every morsel out of it, uh, and take it with us through Romans, through uh, all the other books of the Bible, and not lose it. Because I think what we do see in the Bible, we see trajectories of light upon light upon light, one degree of glory to another. Um, but no one passage has the full truth. 
about God. So we need the whole thing. And we need to recognize that some passages maybe are clearer. That John, who is the apostle closest to Jesus, grasped more than any of his colleagues. All right, with that, where are we in John? Nine. This is a very uh, timely passage. So, uh, Elaine, would you read for us 1 through 12? Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground, made clay with the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with clay. And he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Shalom, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seen. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is not this he who sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. He said, I am he. Therefore they said to him, How were your eyes opened? He answered and said, A man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to the pool of Shalom and wash. So I went and washed and I received sight. Then they said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. Where do we begin? Um, let's start with the beginning. He saw a man blind from birth. And disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sent this man or his parents that he was born blind? What a kind of question is that? How would this man sin? Believe it or not, this was a dispute among the rabbis. They argued relentlessly about people like this blind man who was born blind, born with some kind of defect. And the great issue to discuss was, was it possible for the fetus to sin while in the womb? And some rabbis said, yes, it is. And some rabbis said, no, it's not. Maybe circumstantial. Mm. That'd be like fetus alcohol syndrome. Maybe or something like that. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's the parents. But that's the parents issue, know, not the that's, kids. That's passed on inherently. But, yeah. So, what does Jesus say? He completely shuts it down. He shuts it down. <laughs> you know what this text reminds me of? Joshua. I think it's Joshua 5, maybe 6. No, I think it's 5. You remember that Joshua sees this being in front of him? And he says, are you on our side or on the side of our enemies. And what does the man say? Neither. Neither. <laughs> Neither one. Jesus does that here. Um, I wonder if we ask Jesus today, are you on the side of those who want women's ordination, or are you on the side of those who don't want women's ordination, who don't believe in women's ordination? And what he say? 
Neither. (laughs) (laughs) You figure it out. (laughs) And I know that cuts across a lot of things that I discuss with people, a lot of things that are going on, uh, that I see going on. And yet, isn't God bigger than a box? Any box? Isn't he the God of the whole world? And we Adventists are still in our corner thinking we're the only ones in heaven. As one cartoonist, you've heard the joke about Adventists in heaven. Which one? Uh, The one where they're in a huddle off to themselves. And another group walking by says, shh, don't let them know. They think they're the only ones here. <laughs> yeah. It's always would be nice to to have some definite guideline that you know is correct, wouldn't it? <laughs> From God. But would we develop if we had that? No. That's why he gave us a brain. So. Yeah. Uh, because you, you think about child development. Children, when they're very young, in order to protect them, we have to tell them everything to do. Mm-hmm. We have to give them lots and lots of guidance and, and work with them. But the sooner we can let them start making choices for themselves, the more devo- well-developed they will be and ready to face the world uh, when they're adults. And if we're still in adulthood, still telling them every move to make, there's no moral development in that. And it is written, we've been appointed as kings and priests. So here we are with our character development. You said it beautifully a couple weeks ago in regards to the depth of pain that many of us will experience in life and feel. It seems like the greater the depth of pain that we experience, the more we see things differently than we wouldn't have seen. The less we're part of the stream of consciousness that runs through our world. And the more we're willing to go upstream against the current. Is that my problem? I remember, Jane, one of the definitions that kind of shocked me when I heard it, because you think it's much more complex than that. It says character is choice and self-control. And, you know, one of the ways, you know, if you analyze it down what it is, and, you know, God took such a risk in giving us choice, you know. I often say, and you look at what we deal with and people's brokenness and stuff, I God, I'd never give humans choice. <laughs> you know, but then the offside, you can't really develop a deep love relationship, you know, yeah, without no, it. But it's so risky with sin, sinful human, perfect human beings, wonderful. You know, sinful human beings, it's a mess. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, the, the truth is that nothing would be genuine or authentic yeah. if we didn't have, if it wasn't voluntary. Yeah. Robotic. He knew, he knew what he was doing, but boy, it's... Um, it's costly. It's, it's mentally costly. So, back to the text. Jesus isn't going to get into a dispute. I mean, he says this happened for a purpose. God allows some people to suffer to try to educate the rest of the rather dumb people <laughs> around that things aren't the way they have neat and tidily ordered the universe as. And things are not under their control and that things are not uh, status quo. 
And many times things are not as though they appear. Right. Mm. So this happened that the works of God might dis- be displayed in him. Watch what I'm about to do. This is, this is for a purpose, and this is going to have a good ending. And then he says, as long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Everything Jesus does is to shed light on something. And that's what's going to happen now. So do you think he, so some people, and maybe once in a while myself, <laughs> would say, okay, did God cause this to happen at this very, I mean, brought these events together to reveal himself, or uh, is this something that was asked of him, and he goes, oh, this would be a great moment. What do you aha, think? Aha, aha moment, or created it through a sequence of events. Well, what do you think? The way I like to think, think of it, that he is so big and powerful that he can take evil and turn it into good. <laughs> you know, yeah. that, I mean, it, it's, it's hard for us to, when we think something, I was wondering how far reaching we could spread that. You know, this is one case, but could we generalize that more and say, when bad things happen, or even in genetically inherited bad things that we have, that it could be to glorify God if we let Him. Is it is it possible? And this is this is a a thorny question that I deal with every year when I teach God and human suffering, and, mm-hmm. and God and human suffering has been expanded to two. I teach it two quarters now, not just one. Is it possible that God is the gatekeeper? Of what Satan does. That's the way it seems in Job, isn't it? I mean, Satan has to get permission hmm. to be able to do anything. It's a clear gatekeeper. That's a great... Yeah. 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 So he's the gatekeeper, and he weighs everything he allows for what he can do with it and for what we can handle. Now, that's, that's not comforting to my students. My students would like to get God off the hook completely and say, you know, we just live in a sinful world and that's why we suffer. And there's some truth to that. I mean, <laughs> frankly, I do think that gatekeeper image is not adequate to explain everything. And the reason I say that is because there are things, because God has allowed us such freedom that we do to one another, that he, by his very nature, cannot intervene. Because of his rules of choice, it's like First uh, Corinthians. The point was, I just had to leave you to your own destructive devisings and self-destruction, really. Because he, you know, if you want to do that, he's not going to force you. And and where that really cuts us to the quick mm-hmm. is when children are caught in that. Oh, yeah. It, yeah, Kim. Um, one thing that I, I've noticed, I'm not saying these people here, but I've noticed a lot of people don't keep the great controversy in mind in that, yes, as we go along and ultimately at the end, a lot of things are going to happen that are evil because the gatekeeper part that you were talking about is going to be allowed more and more so that Satan can do what he needs to do because the whole demonstration is to show not only us, but 
the universe. What would happen if Satan were allowed to do what he is accused? Yeah. Of, you know, this thing's going to blow up here pretty soon. Well, it's, it's a little bit like the, I don't know, those of you who are my generation and older, may remember the 1970s when they came up with the J-curve. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, in the 1970s, they did some uh, kind of demographic mapping, and they discovered that in a few decades, uh, the population was going to explode exponentially. Uh, if it kept on the same rate it was going, it was going to explode. It had been going like this gradually, and suddenly it would go like this, and they called that the J-curve. Well, good and evil are on that kind of trajectory. The worse some people get, the better some other people get. Do you understand? In other words, oh, it, I don't think there's a better way to look at this than to watch the election. Uh, people standing up for morality, for real morality, for how we treat one another, for, for how we respect one another and, and human dignity and human uh, value. Is just you never used to hear these discussions. It was all about money or something else. Uh, and then to the other side of the coin, the disrespect, the the sudden explosion of of violent language and 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 uh, cutting words and and just taking people to task and and uh, reactionary talk and and, and just immoral talk. So we're watching this whole process of good and evil come to stark reality because how else are we going to see good and evil for what they are? I think through adversity comes stronger people uh, testing their morals, but will come out of that even stronger, like you say, with, yeah. with when you're put under fire, you're going to either... You're either going to crumble and get burned or come out yeah. of it. Yeah. So, uh, and, and what is Jesus doing but doing that very thing? He's bringing, he's drawing the forces of good and evil together in a final showdown. And the reason I say final is because this is where Satan really is cast out of heaven, is at the cross. So this whole thing is going to come together and, and the universe, not us, but the universe is going to see good and evil face to face. For in all of its horror, I mean, imagine watching this former friend and colleague who was once your leader, who has trumpeted all kinds of things, made all kinds of claims, and been very confusing and devious and, and causing things and then blaming them on God, but, but causing them in such a way you couldn't really detect whether he caused them or not. And he's at the foot of the cross trying to take the life of his creator. That's when suddenly everything becomes clear. And that's why he was cast out of heaven, because the angels wouldn't. They said, we don't have any room for you up here. We're not going to listen to you anymore. You're a liar and a murderer out of our lives. See, God didn't arbitrarily kick him out. There was just no room left. Isn't that the point that Ellen White describes even the other planets, they asked that he not be allowed to come. And yeah, I think that's the inference anyway, that um, 
Yeah, that the whole universe at the cross, we're like, we're done with that. There, uh, the way she puts it is every last root of sympathy with Satan and his agenda was uprooted. Kim had another interesting point, though, as we come in this convergence towards the end, that evil will not appear as evil. And the deceptions will continue to increase such that there is this condition where evil appears to be the good. And the good is made to be evil. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah I've been thinking about that a lot, in mm-hmm. fact. That's a tough one. That's one of those fact, things you mentioned earlier what about, I was thinking what, is, about what we can't handle. What I was thinking about is the recent events in the church where we use good language to depict evil. A year of grace with a Herculean sword over my head. Really, is a year of grace? <laughs> How does that work? Mm-hmm. You know, if you use the right word, you can make people think anything that you want. It, it just baffles me. And, and it reminds me of an experience I had when I was in college. I was in my last quarter of summer school, and I was taking a class called Art Renaissance uh, and Renaissance to Modern. So we started with the Madonna's move forward through the different periods uh, to the Renaissance and, and then to modern period in art. And, of course, in there is the Impressionistic period of Monet, and, and uh, uh, there's this little classical period. Ever heard of the classical period? That's the period where George Washington was painted without his mole. You know, he had this big mole on his face. And he was painted without it because in the classical period, art had reached its perfection. And you had it down to a dance eyebrow and you didn't deviate. So the teacher took us on a field trip. And since we were at Andrews University, he took us to the Chicago Museum of Art, which is one of the most fabulous art museums in the world. At least in the United States. It probably doesn't come anywhere close to the Louvre. But anyway... um, he they, he took us there, and we took on this tour of the different periods. And I don't recall that we did them in chronological order, but I because I recall spending a lot of time with Monet, it's my favorite. And uh, after that, coming to the classical period, which seems kind of backwards to me, but we came to this little room. It was in a room in the middle of a larger display, and it was not even as big as this room. If you go to that whiteboard, that side, and draw a wall over there, that's the size of the room. And our whole class, which was a small class because it was summer school, managed to cram into this room. And there were only a few paintings on the wall. And we were told, well, you know, this, like we said, this is the period where art was perfected and you couldn't deviate from the rules. And so not very many people took up art. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I looked around the room. You lose the creativity. You lose all that creation. Do it this way. It's like uh, Helen Buckley's Red Flowers with Green Stems. Mm-hmm. So I looked at this one painting. Now this is the period of the tail end of the Spanish Inquisition. And here is this painting of the Grand Inquisitor. Have you ever seen that painting? It's the painting of one of the Inquisitors, I believe, of the Spanish Inquisition. 
And I remember looking at him. Now, this was a very hot August day in Chicago. High humidity. And we're crammed in this little room. And so it's hot in there. You know, we're kind of boiling. And I look at this painting and I see first benignity. If, if I love you, I want what's best for you. And then you look deeper into the eyes. And there's this, but if you don't line up to what I say, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> and I remember thinking, that's their picture of God. That's the picture of God that drove this whole thing. And I remember chilling. <laughs> the reason I painted this portrayal of being overheated. I chilled at <laughs> the very thought. But I do think, I think, Peter, what you're saying is right. And, and Jesus, didn't Jesus face that? Isn't that really what he was struggling with? So let's look what he does. Gene, can I ask you before you leave? I'm still stuck a little bit on the gatekeeper. Because I haven't, do you really believe that? Or is there a theological basis? You know, he says, I only tempt you above what you're able that there. Yeah. You, well, it's in Job. I, I get that from Job. Because the Satan has to ask him permission. Because I've certainly seen that. I know I had a client, a parent that was flipping out with one of my adolescent clients this week. And they discovered something. They, um, and I said, you know, my experience with, with adolescents, they can do some of the most awful things. But there is like, it says, but they don't seem to reap the consequences that they should reap for what they're exposed to or that. Because... Uh, God knows their level of innocence and doesn't allow it to happen until they have more clarity and choice sometimes. And it just, you know, so I was trying to find a way to kind of calm them down and say, well, let's just observe and see what happens and don't jump to conclusions about stuff. But do you really believe that that gatekeeper? I believe it is. I don't believe it answers every aspect of the problem of good people, but I think it's there. I, and, and Ellen White basically suggests that, that, that nothing comes to us except through Jesus, and he bears the brunt. We get the fallout after. And Jesus himself said, I am the door. Okay. The gatekeeper to the sheep. And, and, and the sheep go in and out and find safety. I'll take the attack of the wolves, and the, and the sheep may get bruised, but they're still safe. You know, and, and these terrible things that happen to the adolescents, we think, that's horrible, especially in terrible situations. But maybe there was purpose that that rape victim experienced so that now he or she is completely different in their adulthood to the better that they wouldn't have been. And I think God can do that. The, the thing that I, ha I have to recognize at the same time is God never intended a rapist rape someone because that's a moral issue now. Uh, does God want rape? Does God want incest? Does God want child, children molested? Did God want uh, uh, Sherry Papini to be kidnapped and, and tortured and... Uh, beaten uh, and, and then left by the road on Thanksgiving morning. You know, he, he obviously intervened or she wouldn't be alive. But, Jean, I think there's so many, uh, like this text is saying, to glorify God. But there's so much in our world. We try to heal on our own humanistic model. There's a lot of things in my discipline 
they're not healable. Addictions are not healable without a spiritual component. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of your deep psychological things, there is uh, like post-traumatic stress of a, of a, a major violation or abuse that will never be healable. And even our the whole process that you learn to treat it is basically helping them cope. You never actually get rid of those scars except in a spiritual model. Is I will take out your heart of stone. Right. And and I will that, give but, you a heart of but flesh. But that has to be but that has to be that isn't a one time shot. No, it can be it has yeah. to be a con- constant drawing of the love of God and, and the intimacy that he has because uh, we still live in this horrible world and we're still going to get bruised again and again and I've known people who seem to be targets <laughs> for Satan's anger right, right. you know just through other people it, it seems like every abuser found them <laughs> and mistreated them yeah I, I, think, I think it's important that how we have a, a mosaic model where we have many different factors that we bring into play on this, uh, and that we understand it in a holistic manner, because it's easy. I will see something from one side, find that comforting, and then my students that I'm teaching in God and Human Suffering will say, no, that doesn't work for me, because da-da-da-da-da, and I'm like, oh, well, I never thought it from that angle. <laughs> you know. And so from another angle, I need a different kind of solution uh, for that. So it, it becomes a mosaic. Um, it's, it's sort of like, have you ever had symptoms, alarming symptoms, and, and you couldn't figure out what it was that was causing them? And so you tried try treating it for this, and treating it for that, and treating it for that. And maybe it was a whole combination of things. A whole combination of factors that led to that problem. And that's what I've, I've finally had to realize, is that our bo- bodies are extremely complex, and, and often... We have different issues that are breaking it down uh, altogether, collectively. Mm-hmm. And you can't just treat one thing. Mm-hmm. Well, let's, let's go to what Jesus does. Having said this, verse 6, He spit on the ground and made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him. Wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Where do you think this took place? It's the Sabbath morning. 59. He was going through the midst of them. He was leaving the temple. And then 9. Now as Jesus passed by. Tell the temple. They, um, the Pharisees brought him to the temple, I think. So Jesus... He was slipping away from the temple grounds. So somewhere... Like, uh, yeah, my my sense is that most blind people went to the temple. They would get money, mm-hmm. more likely. Okay. Now, where is the where's the, pool? where's the pool? Where's the closest pool? It's right around the corner. It's the pool of Bethesda. Jesus doesn't send him to that pool. And that pool would be the logical place because that's a pool of healing. Yeah. We just had a story like that a few chapters ago. So, But Jesus sends him clear across Jerusalem. I've looked at a map of Jerusalem to find out. He sent him clear across Jerusalem to the Pool of Siloam, which is the baptismal tank. All the way to the southern end. Right. Yeah. 
as a blind person. All the way to the southern end. <laughs> he sent him all the way there with this mud on his eyes. Now, let's unpack this. Why does Jesus go through this kind of ritualistic thing of spitting on the ground? I mean, it, the text could have just said he molded some clay and put it on his eyes. No, but he spits on the ground, he molds the clay, and then he anoints him on the eyes, and then he sends him clear across Jerusalem. What is Jesus doing with this? I don't think it has anything to do with clay, spit, <laughs> or washing. <laughs> I think there's something else that God is... <clears throat> there is. There is. <clears throat> but it's it, but for actually... him to think about, think about what's happening, and to see his level of belief. Perhaps. He's going to do a lot of thinking. You know why? Mm -hmm. Jesus just broke five Sabbath laws. Mm. Oh, walking. You were not to spit on the ground on the Sabbath day, lest a blade of grass grow and you be guilty of watering on the Sabbath. (laughs) You were not to mold clay, lest you be guilty of making pottery on the Sabbath. You were not to anoint anybody above the head, above the neck, I mean, lest you break the Sabbath, because you were not to wash the face or anoint the face above the neck on the Sabbath day. This is in the Talmud. I don't know if spitting on the ground is. I haven't come across it, but I read it some years ago, many, many years ago, actually, in the Sabbath School Lesson Quarterly. So I'm assuming somebody did their research and and got a hold of that. And finally, he sent him a Sabbath day's journey and back. Too far. <laughs> on a Sabbath day. He broke five Sabbath laws. And he made him wash his face, yeah. right? Wow. Which he wasn't supposed to do on the Sabbath day. That was four. Is, it, is the washing of the face? Spitting on the ground, yeah. molding the clay, right. anointing the eyes. Oh. Washing the eyes and going a Sabbath day's journey. And more than that, the man had to desecrate that holy water in the pool of Siloam because it was the baptismal tank. Oh, With the mud. mud. Oh. And then he comes back and tells everybody about it, of course. Yeah. And you can imagine. So Jesus deliberately breaks these laws. So that, I suppose, explains why they took him to the Pharisees then. Could yeah. mm-hmm. he be breaking all these lines? We, and, yeah, that and the fact that Where this is, is a he? terrible, terrible thing to have happened to their <laughs> uh, uh, iconography of theology that they worship uh, because in their view, this man was born in sin, as they will say. Luckily, he said, I don't know where he's at. Because <laughs> they were going to go after him soon. Well, let's see how far Probably. we get through the rest of this. Um, and what is interesting is uh, they don't even know he's he's so bright eyed now and bushy tailed they don't even recognize him. And uh, is this this man? Well, was he maybe, maybe he looks like him. And uh, so they said, "Well, then uh, he says, I am the man.' You know. So they said, "Well, then, how were your eyes open?" As if they don't know. And he says, the man they called Jesus made some mud, put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Sloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. 
Gene, did they have any paradigm where healing could happen? Because they seem to like to accuse Jesus, the devil. That, you know, they don't have a a place, a way that you could receive. Well, they did knew they? better. What about Elisha and all the healings he did? Yeah. What about raising people from yeah. the dead? Elijah and Elisha. They, they well, they knew about it. But but mm-hmm. look at this. I I was just working on this last night. Many years ago, here at PUC, when I was a student, God called me to be a theologian, and he anointed me for that task after the manner of the Levitical priests. And I had to raise... I was, I was writing something last night about this and thinking, okay, can the voice of God in the general conference and session undo what God has done in my life. He anointed me. That's the closest you're going to get in the Bible to ordination. Can can this this be? Well, what would the side who's opposed to women's ordination say about my ordination from God? They would say it's of the devil. And, and, And I know that for a fact because there's a lot of talk about how the rebellious unions are satanic. So, if that's the case, it isn't that they don't know. It's that they won't believe. They won't believe. They could just as easily ascribe this to God. They have it in the scriptures. But no, because it's not our way, and because we're not in control of it, and it doesn't match our theology, and he's destroying our theology, it's satanic. So they said, where is this man... And it's interesting, he knows that his name is Jesus. You remember the man in, in chapter 5 who carries the mat? He doesn't even know who he is. But this man knows that he is Jesus. So they bring to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees asked, also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes. And I washed, and now I see, the man replied. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God. See? There it is. For he does not keep the Sabbath. He just broke five rules. Mm -hmm. They've lost the spirit of the Sabbath. And uh, so they... uh, The others said, But how can a sinner perform such signs? They were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What do you have to say about him? It was your eyes he opened? The man replied, He is a prophet. I still did not believe he had been blind and received his sight. <laughs> we know we make ourselves look like such idiots, don't we? <laughs> Are you sure he was blind to begin with? <laughs> Faking it. We know, and so they ask his parents. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it now that he can see? And his parents are scared, obviously. We know he is our son, his parents answered, and we know that he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. <laughs> he will speak for himself. That's good. Isn't how, that how we deal with things? Yeah. He did it all. Passing the buck. time on their hands to deal with. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Boy, does this sound like the next year. 
Um, <laughs> I, I hope not. That's why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God. Isn't this ironic here? Jesus has said, this is, going, this is for the sake of the glory of God. And now they tell this man, give glory to God and tell the truth. We know this man is a sinner. Tell us that he is. <laughs> That's their kind of giving glory to God. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, I was blind, but now I see. It's like, can't you see the obvious? That's so great. You know, God had to have guided this man exactly what to say. He really mm. smacks punches. Uh, then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He just told them. <laughs> he replied, ears are shut. I, I've already told you and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples? <laughs> oh, I love it. Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. You can tell he's been processing this as it goes on and thinking, What are they saying? He listens to, a God, to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, They don't have an answer, do they? So they say, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Cat in the corner will fight. Well, this man. So this is what we do when we can't, we can't answer someone's statement. When they've used, they pulled the punches and really knocked the props out from under us. Then we have to just throw them out and exercise our arbitrary authority because we've run out of reasons. Yep. This man is sat at the uh, tabernacle, the, the synagogue, temple. the temple for years. Years. He's heard. Everything that's gone on. No mm-hmm. one pays him a mind. They talk freely in front of him. He hears the leaders talking. He knows He knows what is and what isn't. Mm-hmm. And he has been able to process. That's this. a great point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Pro- probably why verse 31 really cuts to the marrow. Because when uh, the man says, uh, mm-hmm. we know that God, God does not listen to sinners... That is real tough for so many because Old Testament, New Testament, it is written, they will pray, I will not listen. They did not listen to me, I will not listen to them. Good point. He really, he really puts them in their own indictment, doesn't he? It's amazing to me that clearly this, this man was around there in that area for years and they didn't know that he was blind from birth <laughs> yeah really yeah yeah well they're they're buff buffaloing yeah. mm-hmm. they're, they're yeah. just yeah. they're bluffing their way right 
problem part of it too is he's been there, but he has been invisible. They they don't give yeah. him. Yeah, well, they're up here. Yeah, yeah. They, yeah he, they, don't, they probably never even looked at him. Yeah, he's he's worthless. Mm -hmm. And and more than that, um, you you tend to discount a person who's blind as not even hearing. You know, mm -hmm. they don't have any faculties that they can't see. Mm -hmm. And so this man, and, and of course a person who's blind, actually their hearing is everything. <laughs> so they really hear everything. They see in different ways. Yes. Mm -hmm. So Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. When he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped. So what simple, childlike. What an incredible moment. Isn't, isn't that an incredible moment? Here are these frowning religious authorities who have just thrown him out, and he finds Jesus. He can now see, and he worships him. What version are you reading? Uh, verse 38. No, what version? Version. The today's New International Version. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Oh. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and said, What? Are we blind too? <laughs> Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. If you were honestly blind, this man was honestly blind. He never tried to deal with the issue of whether he sinned or his parents sinned. You notice that? He just accepted his lot, humbly, with all of the stigma and almost denunciation. But he's been processing, hasn't he, all these years until the moment he's put on stage the spotlight on him. And in that moment he can see, and he sees more than sees. He sees the truth about God. He sees the truth about sin. He sees the truth about these fraudulent, hypocritical religious leaders. And Jesus said, you know, if you were like him, Honestly admitting your blindness. You could see. I could open your eyes. But because you refuse to admit that you're blind, you're, you're stuck. You're blind. No admittance to needing something that God has to offer. Somewhere I heard there's none so blind as he who will not see. Those who don't use their mental vision lose their capacity for seeing. It's the same thing as if you lived in a cave and never saw light. You would come out blind. If you were there long enough. Application. Fulfillment of Scripture, Isaiah 29, 18. Other parts in Isaiah. Which says, In the Geneva, 
Verse 29, And in that day shall the deaf hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. Which means that the bulk of God's people may not be in the Adventist church. Are we ready for that? Are we ready to admit that maybe we're more blind than the people outside the church? I mean, there are so many parallels to this, not just this story, but the whole where the Jewish nation is and where we are. The Jewish nation was divided into two political parties that were religious. The Sadducees, who were the liberals and didn't believe in the resurrection. And the Pharisees, who were conservative and upholders of the traditions of the law and Moses. And who multiplied church policy, a.k.a. the Mishnah. What became the Mishnah? Like crazy and tried to enforce it keep everybody in line. The same scenario. There isn't much difference. And I think God is going to allow us to have a few blind men that he gives sight to. And we'll probably throw them out. Won't listen to you. Because you can't handle it. Yeah. It's just too much. So these are times when I think it behooves us to admit our own blindness and ask God for the ISAP of the Holy Spirit so that we might see things clearly as they are. Because I think this next year is one of the most crucial years that the Seventh-day Adventist Church has ever seen. We are at the crossroads. We are at a time of decision. And it's, it's just crucial that we have our eyes open and are not blind. I thought it's a... A serious note to end on. I don't think it's always wrong to end on a serious note. So I think with that, we'll have prayer. Dear God, God of the opened eyes, a God who is bigger than our petty rules and policies, a God who is willing to be intentional and be resistant in a nonviolent way who wants to open our eyes. I pray for every single Seventh-day Adventist, including us, that we will first admit our blindness and next allow you to open our eyes that we might see. Help us not to be afraid of the light because we've been in darkness in a dark place for so long that the light may seem overpowering and frightening. Help us to open our eyes and see you as you really are. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.